If you haven't done so already, you can open to that passage that Sam read for us, Acts chapter 5, beginning uh, at verse 17. Our focus this morning is actually going to be on verses 29 through 32, Uh, but uh, in context, this is Peter's answer to the high priest after his third arrest. Uh, If you were with us last Sunday, we, we looked at these same verses, and you will remember that in verses 17 through 21... Uh, we read about Peter's second uh, arrest. We were told in verse 17 that the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. You see, the high priest, when they, when they saw the, the signs and the wonders that the apostles were doing, and when they heard the, the message that they kept proclaiming, even filling Jerusalem, he's going to say, they were jealous. They were jealous to protect their positions of power and prestige. They were, they were jealous to, to protect their function as the priests of Israel. And so they arrested the apostles because the apostles were proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. They were proclaiming Jesus as the perfect and forever high priest who had offered to God not merely the the symbolic blood of bulls and goats, but who had offered to God his own precious blood, the efficacious sacrifice for the sins of his A sacrifice that effectively made the ongoing work of the priests unnecessary from that point forward. And so in order to protect their positions, the high priest and those who were with him sought to silence the apostles by arresting them and putting them in the public prison. But of course, as you know, it didn't work. It didn't work because the jail wasn't able to hold them. We read in verse 19 that during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. The angel rescues them from the public prison, not so they can go and and do their own thing, not so that they can go and please themselves and, and live how they desire, but rather so that they could get back to the work that God had given them to do. The angel sent them right back into the temple courts to keep preaching and and teaching the good news concerning Jesus. And of course, as we saw last Sunday, that is exactly what the apostles did at daybreak, Luke tells us. They again entered the temple and began to teach. This is where we pick up the story this morning. In the middle of verse 21, Luke writes, Now when the high priest came... Those who were with him, they, uh, and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. So you can, you can imagine the scene. They've arrested the apostles, they've put them in the public prison, and then the next day when it's time for the trial, they, they call uh, together the, the entire senate of the people. All of the elders of Israel are together for the, uh, to, to judge these apostles and to, to issue a verdict against them, which was sort of already predetermined. 
But when they send to the prison to have them brought before the council, they find no one there. And it's significant that they did find the prison locked and they found the guards standing at the door. Luke tells us that so, so that we understand that the, the chief priests and the council, they, they could not blame this on the guards. They, they could not blame this on the, the failure of the, the prison structure. Everything was working. Everyone was doing their job. And that's what left the council perplexed. They had not seen the angel of the Lord with their own eyes, but surely they must have had a a foreboding sense that God was at work and not for them. God was at work in this, and he was at work on behalf of the apostles. But as they were pondering this, and as they were considering what they were going to do, Luke tells us that someone came and told them, look, the the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And again, at this point, the the, the high priest and those who are with him, the, the council members, they have a decision to make. They had a decision to make last Sunday, too, you'll remember, and they they made the wrong decision, but now God has graciously given them another chance. They have another decision to make. Clearly, God is with the apostles. He's not only with them in the signs and the wonders that they were, were doing, but now he is with them, freeing them from the public prison. And so the, the a priest, as they see this, as they ponder this, they have a decision to make, but it is a costly decision. For acknowledging the apostles and receiving their testimony concerning Jesus would cost them their lives. Lives they dearly loved. And so, again, the council decides to arrest the apostles. This for the third time. But this time without force for fear of the people. They they don't want to cause a riot and so they go and they, they bring them in Quietly, despite all the evidence that God was at work in them, the high priests maintained their opposition to the apostles. They they maintained their opposition to the teaching concerning Jesus because they would rather hold on to their positions than to submit to the new thing that God was doing. And it's with the apostles in custody that the priest questions them. We read in verse 28, the priest says to them, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. There's a whole sermon on that, but we're not going to do it this morning. But they, they have filled Jerusalem with the teaching of Jesus. They, they have not uh, backed down from proclaiming it to any and to all. We read at the end of this passage that, that they are doing it in the temple and they are doing it house to house. They are filling Jerusalem with the good news of Jesus Christ. And the priests say, and you even intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And it is in response to that accusation, that accusation that they have been filling Jerusalem with the good news of Jesus Christ, That Peter answers. And notice again what he says. He says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God gives to those who 
obey him. We must obey God rather than men. And that's really the first thing that I I want you to, to notice this morning is that Peter frames his answer to the high priest in terms of obedience. The first words out of his mouth are, we must obey God. And he ends with a reference to those who obey him. He says, this is all about obedience to God. Now, we, we looked at the implications of that phrase a, a few weeks ago when we, when we considered, uh, when Paul, Peter said something similar in chapter 4. So, so this morning, we're not going to consider the phrase generally, but we're going to focus on it specifically. What does it specifically mean in this context? And when Peter speaks of the obedience of God in this context, it is clear that what he has in mind is the proclaiming of Jesus Christ as Lord as the Savior of sinners, as the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Peter is proclaiming to the priest and proclaiming to all who will hear that obedience to God cannot be separated from the lordship of Jesus Christ. If the priests are going to serve God as they ostensibly claim to do, then they must serve Christ. They must submit to the apostles' testimony. For to reject Jesus and his apostles is necessarily to reject God. The two cannot be separated. That's a message that we need to hear in the the church today. We need to understand That if we are going to serve the one true and living God, there is no way to do that apart from Christ. There are no other options. There are no alternative routes. Jesus is the way and he is the only way if we are going to serve the one true and living God. And that's the point that that Peter is driving home to the priests. He is is showing them the, the clear choice that they have. If you would be a servant of God, you must receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, for he is the only way. And to drive that point home, Peter uh, emphasizes the work, first the work of the Father, then the work of Jesus himself, and then finally the work of the Spirit. And I want us to look at all three of those this morning. First, the work of the Father. What is it that Peter tells us that the Father is doing? Well, look again at what he says. He says, uh, the, the Father, whom he calls the, the God of our fathers. Now, that's not a throwaway line. That that is significant. In fact, it's foundational to what Peter is doing here in this text. It's it's important because it highlights that the apostles are, are not proclaiming something entirely new. They are not starting a new religion. Christianity is not something other than the, the religion of Old Testament Israel. Rather, it is the fulfillment, it is the, the completion. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He came to, to bring to completion the good work that, that God had begun, even in the garden, when he declared to Adam and Eve that, that he would reconcile them to themselves and undo and destroy the work of the devil. He came to, to bring to completion the, uh, the, the work that was begun when he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and said that he would bless him to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. He, he came to bring to completion the good work that he began when, when he, by the hand of Moses, he led the people out of captivity in Egypt and, and, and brought them through Joshua into the promised land. 
He came to bring to completion that, that good work that he did in establishing David as the king after his own heart in the land that he had given to his people. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. All of God's promises find their yes in him. And that is the point that, that Peter is driving home here. He says, it is the God of our fathers who raised Jesus from the dead. And that is important. That is, that is vital. Because there is only one true and living God. There is only one God who made the heavens and the earth. There is only one God who now rules over space and time. There is only one God who does whatever he pleases to the glory of his own name. And Peter is saying to the priest, if you would serve the one true and living God, the God of our fathers, you must receive Jesus. You must receive him as the Christ. You must receive him as the one whom God exalted. The one whom God raised again from the dead. See, the priests had intended to discredit and to shame Jesus by hanging him on a tree. They had intended to, to prove that he was not who he claimed to be. But they, they intend to, to, to prove that he was under God's curse. That's what being hung on a tree meant. One who was hung on a tree, according to Deuteronomy, is under the very curse of God. And the priests had intended to, to shame Jesus, to discredit him, to, to prove that he was not by hanging him on a tree. But God had vindicated him, even justified him, declaring him to be the righteous one by raising him from the dead. Yes, he was cursed. We, we've confessed it even this morning that he was humiliated. Yes, he was cursed, but not for his own sins. The curse he bore was our curse. He died for the sins of his people. Therefore, death had no claim on him because he had no sins of his own. Because, because there was no charges against him. When he died, death could not hold him. Death had no claim on him. And God raised him up to declare his innocence and to, and to proclaim that the sacrifice that he offered was worthy. It had been received. And God now considered the debt paid in full. That record of debt that stood against us. It had been nailed to the cross with our Savior. And it is now no more. And by paying that debt, by abolishing that debt, we are told in Colossians that Jesus effectively disarmed our enemies. You see, death had no claim on Jesus and therefore could not hold him. But do you understand that if you are in Jesus Christ this morning by faith, death has no claim on you? Because you are in Christ, the record of death that was against you, the, the weapon of your enemy, the, the strength by which they could pull you down into the, uh, the pit of Sheol, 
Those weapons have been taken away. Your enemies have been disarmed. Death has no claim on you because you are in the righteous one, the one vindicated by God, the one raised from the dead. So that Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This this is the wonder of the gospel. This is the the gospel that the apostles were, were filling Jerusalem with. That we are a people who have been redeemed. Not with the uh, imperishable things, but with the imperishable and precious blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Through his death, death has been defeated. Because he died in our place, death no longer has a claim on us. There is now no condemnation for us because we are in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel that the apostles proclaim. But I want you to see that it's not the full gospel. It is glorious. It is is wonderful. But the apostles don't stop there. They don't stop with the, the forgiveness of our sins because, yes, God raised him up for our justification. And because we have been justified in Christ, we now have peace with God. But there is a second work of the Father that that Peter mentions here. Not only did he raise him from the dead for our justification, but notice what he says. God also exalted him. Having raised Jesus from the dead, verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and Savior. You see, Jesus is, is not only alive from the dead, he is enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, God's plan of redemption was not merely to provide for the forgiveness of our sins. Yes, he he does that, and and he does that uh, necessarily. We are are sinners guilty before God, justly condemned, without hope of salvation except in his sovereign mercy. We need our sins to be forgiven, but the forgiveness of our sins is not the end of the story. God forgives our sins that he might bring us into his kingdom, that he might make us heirs together with his Son. You see, God's plan for the fullness of time was not merely to forgive us, but as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, God's plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Think about that for a moment. What is Paul getting at? What what is he getting at when he says that that all things will be united in him, things on heaven and, and things on earth? Well, the need to to bring union to heaven and earth clearly implies that heaven and earth have somehow been separated. And we actually sort of think of that as normal. It it is so a part of our daily existence in this present evil age that we think of heaven and earth as separate. But it was not always meant to be so. God created the heavens and the earth and he dwelt among his people at the very beginning. He, he created, uh, he created a, an earth where, where he could be with his people, where he could be with them in, in all of his glory to, to their eternal good. And it is that union that was severed when our first father rebelled against God by eating the fruit of the forbidden tree. When sin and death entered the world, heaven and earth were torn asunder. And this earth, this 
cosmos was plunged into an estate of sin and misery. Sin and misery that we know all too well. But you see, God was, was not content to let his plans be thwarted. He, he was not content to, to allow his creation to, to languish under his curse. And so when man rebelled, God responded by setting into motion a plan to deal with mankind's sin. Not, not just their guilt, not just so that they could be forgiven, but so that heaven and earth could again be united, made one in Christ. Or to use that language that is, that is so familiar to us, the language of the Lord's Prayer. God sent Jesus Christ that the kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. That is what God is doing in and through Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead and exalting him to his right hand. First, he deals with sin so that we can be forgiven. But second, he also establishes his kingdom so that his redeemed and forgiven people might have eternal life, might have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance in the age to come. Really, that's what the language of eternal life is all about. Eternal life doesn't just mean everlasting life. This life forever would not be great news. Eternal life means that we receive not just everlasting life, but that we receive the life of the age to come. We receive the life of the coming kingdom of God. Life in its fullness. Life in its abundance. Life as it is supposed to be. And this is the twofold saving work that Peter is proclaiming to the priests. This is the, the twofold saving work that they have been filling Jerusalem with. God the Father, the, the God of our fathers, He raised Jesus to secure the forgiveness of our sins and He exalted Him to His right hand to establish His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is what it means for Him to be Savior and, and leader. We're more used to, to speaking of him as our, as our king. But he is our, he is our leader. He, he is the, the, the founder of our hope. He is the, the pioneer of the way of life, the first fruits from the dead. And he is the one who saves us, brings us with him. This is who Jesus is for us. This is who God has, has made him to be by raising him from the dead and exalting him to his right hand in the heavenlies. Jesus is the climax and fulfillment of God's plan of redemption set in motion even at the beginning. And so again, Peter's point is, is clear. If you oppose Jesus, and if you oppose his apostles, if you do not receive and rest upon him alone for your salvation, if you do not bow to him as your king, then you are opposing the one true and living God. Regardless of what you say with your lips, you are not worshiping the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are going your own way. You are doing your own thing. The only way to serve the one true and living God is in the name of Jesus. It's the first thing that, that Peter drives home 
to the priests. But then he turns to the work of Jesus himself. And notice what he says. He says, Jesus, the the eternal Son of God, the one who was raised, the one who was exalted, he he was given a job to do by the Father. And what is that job? That job is that he might give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is a a turning from sin. It it is a a turning from sin back to God in faith. It is a a turning from sin back to God, acknowledging God to be God, acknowledging sin to be sin, and and, uh, devoting ourselves, resolving in humble reliance upon God's grace. To begin walking in new obedience. To to return to to that life for which we were created. That's the the essence of of repentance. And we need to understand that 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 repentance is itself an act of faith. The fact that that, Peter doesn't mention faith here shouldn't shouldn't trouble us. Because because repentance and faith are two sides of the the same coin. John Murray says it this way. He says the the faith that that believes in Jesus is a repentant faith. And the repentance that that turns to God in Jesus' name is a believing repentance. The two cannot be separated. Faith and and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Repentance is is a bodily expression of faith. And so what Peter is saying here is that God comes to give a a, a believing repentance to his people. And as Sam was saying, that has profound implications. Repentance is God's gift to us. Now there there are uh, any number of things that we could could learn from that statement, but this morning I simply want to focus on that that reality that, that Sam was emphasizing to the kids. If God is the one who gave us repentance, then he wants us To use it. He wants us to to turn to him. He he has not just made salvation possible. He's not just opened the door and said, well, if you want to, come on. He has pursued us and even given to us repentance. You see, the the truth is that, that none of us has it in ourselves to repent. In ourselves, we are hostile to God. In ourselves, we are lovers of darkness. In ourselves, we we are at enmity with Him. And and even haters of God, the Scriptures say. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. This is the testimony of of Scripture, of, of who we are in and of ourselves. And that means... That if God simply made salvation available to us, no one would be saved. We sometimes chafe against a a doctrine like election because we think it's unfair. Try not to focus there. It is a mystery. I will will grant you that. It is hard for us to wrap our minds around. I will will grant you that. But, But the scriptures consistently want us to marvel and wonder at the grace of it. Because the truth is, if God simply made salvation available to sinners like us, no one would be saved. No one would come. We are lovers of darkness. We are fools in our darkened minds who think we are better off on our own. We are like the priest who see the work of God and again and again choose to nevertheless go our own way and cling to our own lives. 
In our natural selves, we are like the council. We are like the priest. And if God simply made salvation available to us, no one would be saved. But God is not content to simply make an offer. He comes to the rescue of his people. He gives to them repentance. He he works faith in them. And that means that that if you are here this morning and you have a sense of your sins and and you grieve over them and you you hate them and you you feel in your heart a a, a compulsion to repent and to, to turn from them, whether for the first time or whether for the thousandth time, if that is the work that God is doing in your heart, then you do not need to wonder if he will receive you when you come. Because that's his work. That's his invitation. That is is him wooing you to himself, drawing you to himself. The grief and the hatred for your sins that you you feel are his gifts to you. The desire to, to turn from them, that is his gift to you. And therefore, you do not need to wonder if he will receive you when you come. And therefore, if he is drawing you this morning, do not resist. Do not harden your heart. Just come. Repent and and turn to him, and he will by no means turn you away. For he raised Jesus up and exalted him to his right hand for this very purpose, to give to his people repentance. But notice how Peter puts it here. He doesn't just say to give to his people repentance. He says to give to Israel repentance. And in this specific context, that is significant. Peter is not suggesting that that Jesus came only to save Israel. The the rest of the New Testament is, is abundantly clear on that count. From the very beginning, God's intention was to save the Gentiles through Israel. He blessed Abraham that all the families of the earth might be blessed through him. But what's the point of Peter singling out Israel here? Peter's point seems to be this. That Israel, despite their consistent, stiff-necked rejection of Jesus, has not yet been cut off from God's grace. God still holds out the offer. Come and you will be forgiven. You see, Israel, like all men, was under sin. Peter, or Paul says it clearly in, in Romans chapter 3. He asks, are the Jews any better off than the Gentiles? Are, are, are God's people who have, been, who have been given God's priests, who have been given God's sacrifices, who have been given God's law, who have the one true religion revealed by God himself, are they any better off? We would think the answer was yes. They've been dealing with God for millennia. And yet Peter says, no, not at all. For both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Israel, like all men, must repent. They are are sinners justly condemned and in need of forgiveness. But it's not only that they must repent. Peter is saying they may repent. They may turn to God and be received. So what's what's your story this morning? 
What is your, your story this morning? Is, is this morning the 1,000th time that God is drawing you to himself? Do you feel that you have been disqualified by your repeated failures? Do you feel that you have, you have heard this gospel from, from the time you were an infant and, and, and you've never lived up to it? Do you feel that you have lived in the church as a, as a hypocrite and a, and a fraud? Peter says the gospel is for you. Jesus was raised and exalted to, to give you the gift of repentance. Receive it this morning. Repent of your sins again. Turn to him again, knowing that he will by no means turn you away. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. They will by no means ever be put to shame. That is the wonder of this gospel. If you will call upon the name of the Lord, if you will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be made an heir of the coming kingdom. And not only will you be an heir, but you will be a witness. I don't have time to fully expound on it, but the last thing that Peter mentions here this, this morning is the, the work of the Spirit. Notice he says, we are witnesses to these things, but so is the Spirit. Now, that's not to suggest that they're, they're sort of working in separate fields, as if, as if the Spirit's working over in Samaria and they're working over in Judea. That, that's not what the apostles have in mind. It says, we are witnesses, and through our testimony, the Spirit himself is testifying. The Spirit is, is, is a witness to the wonder of, of who Christ is. It is the Spirit who actually brings the gift and, and applies it to, to God's people. It is the Spirit who, who makes the words of the apostles effective for the salvation of, of those who, who believe. But, but I want you to notice the very last thing that he says here. He says, and he gives this Spirit to all who obey him. Think about what that means. In this context, what does it mean to obey? In this context, to obey means to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, as, as leader and Savior. And all who do that are given the Holy Spirit for that work. What does that mean for you this morning? It means that, that this gospel is not only for you, but it can flow through you to others. It can flow through you to your children. And when you seek to raise them in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord, the Spirit is with you to make those works effective. Have you ever felt like you just didn't know what to say to your kids? I feel that more and more the older they get. The conversations get harder, not to discourage your young parents, but the conversations just get harder. And I don't always know what to say. But the Spirit is with you in that work. And the Spirit's not only with you as you, as you raise your children, the, the Spirit is, is with you as, you as you seek to share the gospel with your friends and your, your co-workers or your family members, those who so desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That is a hard work. That is an intimidating work. It is a work that we back away from because we're not sure we're up to it. You're not. <laughs> and neither were the apostles. But the same spirit that empowered them to proclaim this gospel, to fill Jerusalem with this gospel, is now at work in you. And so just as they were filling Jerusalem, we might fill Cleveland with the good news of Jesus Christ. Not by our own wisdom, not by our own power, but in the wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit of God. For all who obey him to proclaim Jesus Christ have this spirit. 
And because God our Father raised Jesus from the dead, because he sent Jesus to, to, to spread the benefits of his death, to all who believe, and because he now gives the Spirit to those who are witnesses to that great wonder. Because he does all this through us who believe. That is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for, for the wonder of this gospel. Father, may we recognize that it is the one and only gospel, that Jesus Christ is the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved, that there is no other way to you. May we believe this for ourselves, and may we bear witness to the hope of this gospel here in Cleveland and even to the end of the earth as you give us opportunity. By your Spirit, Father, may we fill Cleveland with this message to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.